listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. Today, I'm joined by Karen Tongson to talk about Rachel, Jack, and Ashley too, more popularly known among Black Mirror fans as the Miley Cyrus episode, which was the final episode of the most recent season, season five of Black Mirror, which premiered in 2019. Karen Tongson is professor of English and gender and sexuality studies and American studies and ethnicity and chair of the Department of Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Southern California. She is the 2019 recipient of the Lambda Literary Jean Cordova Award for Lesbian Queer Nonfiction and the author of two books, Why Karen Carpenter Matters, just published in 2019, and Relocations, Queer Suburban Imaginaries, published in 2011. Her writing and cultural commentary have appeared in NPR, Los Angeles Review of Books, LA Weekly, BuzzFeed Reader, The Los Angeles Times, The Washington Post, as well as in other scholarly and public forums. She has two books in progress, Empty Orchestra, Karaoke, Queer Performance, Queer Theory, under contract with Duke University Press, and Norm Porn, Television and the Spectacle of Normalcy, under contract with NYU Press. She's also the co-editor of Postmillennial Pop, the award-winning book series she co-edits with Henry Jenkins at NYU Press, which has published over 20 titles. Previously a panelist on MaximumFun.org Pop Rocket podcast, she now co-hosts the Gen X theme podcast, Waiting to Exhale, with Winter Mitchell Rohrbaugh. Other than Miley Cyrus herself, there quite simply isn't a more perfect person I could have had as a guest today to talk about Rachel, Jack, and Ashley too than Karen. I met Karen a few years ago when she was in Memphis for only a hot second. We were more or less strangers to one another, but we went out for drinks, listened to some live music, had a few hours of absolutely fascinating conversation and made quick friends. So I can't wait to chop it up with her again today. Thanks so much for joining me and welcome, Karen. Hey, Lee, it's so great to spend time with you right on cue. My cat is mewing in the background, so I hope that that's okay <laughs> for anybody here. who. Well, my uh, dog is, is barking in the background, so I think, I think we'll this, the is whole, this is a whole family episode. <laughs> I'm really glad to see you again, albeit virtually. I was hoping that we get to see each other again in person more frequently, but unfortunately, you know, things interceded. But I'm glad to be here talking to you about Ashley O and about the whole gang, including Jack. And also, let me just say, I have recently become a huge fan of Waiting to Exhale. I did listen to your previous podcast, but I love Waiting to Exhale. So I'm so glad that you do it. I'm a Gen Xer. We need that content. So thank you so much for that. Oh, good. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you're having fun with it. Okay. As you know, at the beginning of every episode, I asked my guests to summarize the Black Mirror episode that we're going to be talking about. So could you go ahead and summarize Rachel, Jack, and Ashley too? How to summarize this episode, really, you know, be- begins kind of, I'm not sure if it's in media rest, but it begins in the middle of a scene on a TV show about a pop star. And you're like hearing about this artist Ashley O, but then cut to two teens, one who seems like a prototypically lonely teen who's fixated on anything that's being said about Ashley O, and another who's surlier, more skeptical, and we learn that they're sisters and they have a single dad, and they live together in your kind of prototypical suburban home. So the perkier of the teens is actually Rachel, and she receives for her birthday, her 15th birthday specifically, a new AI robot named Ashley 2 after this pop star Ashley O that she's been kind of mooning over on the TV set. And Ashley, and who's too, played by Miley Cyrus, and who's played by Miley Cyrus, of course, lest we forget. Right. I mean, I've yeah. just sort of conflated the two in my mind now. That like same, same. Yeah, for the last couple of years since this episode came out, it's basically like, oh, it's Ashley O, right? Uh, Miley <laughs> right. is Ashley O. In any case, Rachel is lonely. She's not particularly popular. We see her isolated in high school. You get all the kind of scenes of loneliness in the cafeteria, not getting really to eat with anyone. So. 
Ashley too is a goddess send to Rachel because they become good pals. And this annoys her older sister, Jack, again, who's very cynical, who always has headphones on uh, and seems to be playing the bass guitar or something. Like she's working on her surly musicianship while Rachel is communing with Ashley too. Rachel is basically learning this dance, the honor roll dance, which is Ashley O's latest big hit, which may strike some viewers and listeners as vaguely familiar. And that's because it's a transposition of Nine Inch Nails' very dark song, Head Like a Hole, into kind of affirmative self-helpy anthem I'm, an, I'm on a roll achieving my goals, right? I don't know if you want to play a little clip right here just to give everybody a feel for this song that has Rachel Agog and that has her learning all the dance moves for her high school talent show. Yeah, I mean, let's do that. Hold on. Yeah, so you see, it's really this self-affirming anthem. And for someone like Rachel, who's a shy teen, who actually has a hard time really feeling centered in herself, going through this awkward and lonely time, especially because she's got this weird exterminator meaning pest exterminator dad, you know, without any kind of caring maternal influence or what have you. And with a disconnected sister, this is a real solve to her, this Ashley O song filled with affirmations. And so she and Ashley too begin to learn the dance moves. And Ashley too also gives her makeup lessons and other things like that to look a little perkier and better, to be her best self, to help her manifest her dreams, you know, all of that. On the side now, what's happening in Ashley O's world, aka Miley Cyrus's world, is that that perky persona, the one that lifts so many teen hearts, uh, behind that is actually a, a deeply disgruntled and alienated performer who is being controlled not by a momager, because her parents aren't around anymore, but by an aunt, a controlling aunt who is fixated entirely on the commodity that is Ashley O, the brand, the image. And you see Ashley herself struggling and writing much darker music, writing more like angsty, mournful acoustic stuff on the piano. She's incredibly jaded and, and overworked as a pop artist. And so you see this relationship playing itself out between her and her aunt, who's squeezing every ounce of energy and talent out of her to make buku bucks. I, you want me to continue summarizing in larger detail about what's going on? Because I mean, something dramatic really happens in the wake of the kind of struggle her Aunt Catherine is having with Ashley about managing her moods, managing her artistic temperament, trying to get her to churn out more pop songs for a new album. You want me to keep going? Yeah, if you could just get us to the end of the episode. Yeah, sure. I, well, yeah. of course, the goriest detail or what initiates a lot of the action and drama beyond the psychodrama that you see these various young people undergoing is that at some point, Catherine discovers Ashley's been hoarding the mood-altering medications that have been prescribed to her by the in-house doctor. And so what she does in a form of punishment, but also in a greater bid to continue to control her even more, she laces Ashley's dinner with a megadose of the meds, which end up inducing a coma. And to explain the fact that Ashley's fallen into a coma, Catherine creates this whole media story, this kind of media cover that Ashley uh, has actually fell into a coma because of a shellfish allergy. So there's Ashley in a coma and Rachel's devastated 
In the meantime, Jack hates the Ashley 2 doll and hides it because Jack is annoyed that her sister Rachel is constantly engaging it and is, doesn't have a grasp on reality. She thinks she's too lost in the virtual. But when Ashley is hospitalized in the coma, that's when Ashley 2 is brought back to Rachel. Ashley 2 doesn't seem to be working, but six months later, it seems that the Ashley 2 becomes reanimated or reactivated. Yeah, partially because the two sisters... Rachel mm-hmm. and Jack figure out this weirdo AI program that their father, a pest controller, oh yeah, is using you know, for the like weird little fake mice or something like that, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So there's a hat. So he's invented this robot mouse that can basically chase another mouse and electrocute it as a pest control device. But he's done that by placing more or less, and this is a common theme in Black Mirror episodes, about basically creating a cookie of the mouse's, a, a duplicate or a simulation of a mouse's yeah, brain and putting it in this yeah. robot. But with certain Mm -hmm. limits around that copied consciousness so that it only has certain things that it can do. And of course, what Rachel and Jack figure out is how to, you know, unleash that. Yeah. Take the limits. Exactly. (laughs) Unleash that cordon off uh, the the very limited uh, there. You get to see this kind of brain scan, right? That's part of Jack's hack. Right. Jack is the one who finds the hack. And you see that only a minuscule portion of the brain is activated in the AI. But what they learn how to do is to basically burst through those boundaries to give a total mirroring between the AI and Ashley's consciousness. Yeah. So they take this hack Mm -hmm. and they apply it to the doll, to the Ashley 2 doll, Mm -hmm. which exactly as you just explained, unleashes all of the IRL Ashley's consciousness into the Ashley 2 robot. Yes. And the real Ashley's consciousness is, again, kind of less perky, affirmative, vacuous pop star and foul mouthed. And, you know, it's a little (laughs) bit more like the real Miley Cyrus, right? That's kind of part of the appeal, I think, that this episode's had to some folks is it's sort of... It's like bye-bye Hannah Montana. Exactly. It's the post-Hannah Montana (laughs) Miley Cyrus. I'm already getting into Star Text, but I so I should stick to exposition. But like, you know, it's basically (laughs) moving from that kind of manufactured pop image to a raw and expletive laden and expressive and angry. Ashley, right? So Ashley O is all of those things, is salty, is foul-mouthed, has moxie, and that has finally (laughs) obliterated the polish, the kind of simulacral veneer of Ashley too. So anyway, they sort all that out. And so basically they figure out that Catherine herself has also somehow tapped into Ashley's dreams and and into her consciousness for a new album and is basically pulling material from scans with the voice recordings made for the Ashley 2 robots. So there's a lot of penetrative inter like brain stuff going on. And having learned that then Ashley enlists the girls, Jack and Rachel, to basically help her collect the digital evidence from her real self's laptop, evidence of her aunt's wrongdoings. And so then you get a kind of caper aspect that wraps the episode up where Rachel and Jack break into Ashley's old place. They see Ashley is about to be disconnected from what they assume is life support, but it's actually the thing that's keeping her in the coma, right? But basically Ashley wakes up, they escape and they race to the venue where Catherine's like doing a whole trade show rollout thing where she's presenting a new product called Ashley Eternal, the holographic replacement for Ashley O who can perform music tours. And, and this is really, you know, when this episode came out, that's kind of the moment where there's a lot of hullabaloo about all these efforts to create holograms and holographic performers, including beaming Prince into the Super Bowl or what have you, right? So it's very much in keeping with that contemporary moment. Anyway, Catherine rolls out Ashley Eternal, but what ends up happening is that Jack, Ashley, and Rachel literally crash through the convention center pursued by a police car. And when uh, the real Ashley steps out, Catherine understands that her plan, her dastardly plan to basically just completely (laughs) take over Ashley's entire consciousness, body and physicality, that's all been eradicated. 
So that's all been foiled. And that's basically where the main story wraps up. And sometime later, you see at the end, a grungier, shall we say, like alt-rock song. You see like a bunch of young kids in a kind of independent rock venue. And you see on stage, not Ashley O, but Ashley fucking no, without the I, right? (laughs) Performing with Jack. So all of that like brooding with a bass guitar and the headphones is turned into something good. While Rachel and Ashley, too, who they've kept around, hang out and groove to the harder rock as some of Ashley's older fans, not really true fans, but they were the pop fans, have walked out disappointed in uh, Ashley's rock turn. And that's how this episode plays itself out. Yeah, no, it's such an elaborate story, but that's such a good summary because, yeah, Rachel, Jack, and Ashley, too, save the quote-unquote authentic Ashley and more or less emancipate her, right? Like, allow her to be the one that she wants to be. I do also secretly love the fact that Jack's sort of brooding baby lesbo character gets redeemed in this, you know? Yeah. But she gets to be in the band. Although, yeah, because she seemed like such a, she's like such a jerk through the first half. Or maybe that's how I was receiving her because, you know, I was strangely more identified with the isolated pop dreamer. But maybe that like that's a kind of a persona that I take on. But more to the point of what you were saying, Lee, is that a lot of critics, when they saw this episode, drew parallels between the kind of Ashley and Aunt Catherine's story and obviously Britney Spears's story and kind of engaged in sustained battle uh, with her conservator father, right? Um, Yeah. And the fact that because of her purported mental illnesses and her inability to regulate them herself, right, which is the kind of rationale that Catherine presents for controlling Ashley, is part of the kind of story that we see around Britney Spears, the free Britney movement. And so in the same way that there are parts of it that mirror the Miley Cyrus star text of moving from glossy Disney pop pop star to poly omnisexual tongue flashing riding a cannonball exactly like naked cannonball writer in much the same way that ashley has that arc that's mirrored in the miley cyrus story you also have that story basically it's a tale as old as time of a female pop artist somehow being manipulated controlled by either a parental figure or a family member or a partner right I mean, this is your wheelhouse is talking about pop music. So maybe we should just start right here. You know, one of the central kind of three lines of this narrative is about pop artists and pop music more generally as entirely formulaic productions. And I do want to say that as a huge music fan, I think there's a part of that that is not incorrect, right? Like what makes pop music popular is the fact that it is formulaic enough to be recognizable, but involves these kinds of differences or variations that also make it new. And so when people critique pop music for being formulaic, that seems entirely to miss the point to me because, of course, that is the very definition of pop music. Is that it's to be it's popular? It is. <laughs> yeah, it's that, to invoke a kind of popular, affiliative set of feelings. It's to become yeah. an earworm. It's to become the thing that is part of a shared, yeah. almost monoculture, right? And yeah, and I think that what a lot of people who are themselves not musicians don't understand is how hard it is to do that like how hard it is to make something that is not a copy but is a repetition with a difference Mm -hmm. you know that is nonetheless able to whether that is in terms of the chord structure sort of formulate music structure or the lyrical story I mean you know people say these things all the time about for lack of a better word roots music forms so pop blues gospel folk right like about these is well it's just three chords in a sad story or it goes like this the fourth the fifth the minor fall the major lift right yeah. you know i mean that, that's just algorithmic 
And it's really just about replacing the story or maybe putting a, a mind recorder or a different key. And I think that people don't realize how difficult it is to actually produce good pop songs. So because I know that you've spent so much time working on this and you just literally wrote a book on Karen Carpenter, <laughs> I'd love to hear you talk more about what is assumed in this episode, which is that pop music is entirely formulaic and completely separable from the artist. Yeah, or that there is no artistry to it. Right. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. In a way, part of the mythos that this episode perpetuates is that it can be created by committee, that there's the producer who comes in and Catherine asks when they're extracting this music from Ashley's consciousness, it's just like, can you do something with that? It's just a fright. Yeah, we can loop it. We could do something. To, you know, we could basically run it through these various processes and generate something, but it's going to take some time. But I also wanted to point my attention to just, or it's not my attention, my attention's already pointed to it, but point everyone's attention to the fact that Ashley's hit on a roll. The one that becomes the earworm in the episode is, you know, essentially like it's just a, a very light remake of Head Like a Hole, right? Of Nine Inch Nails. Mm -hmm. It points out to us how Trent Reznor, even Trent Reznor, in writing a song that we would attribute with kind of, I don't know, a kind of raucous patina of skill, authenticity. Trent Reznor now writes for movies and other soundtracks. Like he's a real artist. Well, Head Like a Hole is actually a pop song. <laughs> That's one of the things <laughs> that the episode really highlights for us is the extent to which something like Head Like a Hole, it's just the setting, the arrangement, the production that made it seem otherwise, but put it in the hands of Miley Cyrus and the kind of pop production team and, it, and it doing its own kind of parodic take on it. And what you get is a great pop song. You know, I think that that's one of the things that the, the episode accomplishes is that it it makes that point for us in the mere example of the song that becomes the earworm over and over again in, in the episode is that, you know, it's something that we ascribed with another kind of value that is being cheapened, I suppose, by its excessive use and reuse and the choreography, the literal choreography that's created around it in the episode. But isn't that an argument in favor of the judgment that there's no real artistry to pop music? It's just production value, right? You know, if a producer can do it, a computer can do it. But the right? base, that but the base layer has to be there. Head like a hole has to be there. It can't just be. And and also all the other because the other songs in the episode, right? It's right where it belongs. It was also Nine Inch Nails song. And they also apparently had a rewrite of Hurt that was turned into Flirt that was mm. going to be uh, included in the episode, which is an interesting kind of take or flip. This is the thing. And I'll bring back to the Karen Carpenter book a little bit because I talk a lot about the kind of song craft of arranging and arrangements. Because the Carpenters themselves, while they have original songs, their best known songs are actually written by other people. And a lot of artists in the 70s and earlier, you know, you have your kind of songwriting factories, you have your Brill Buildings, et cetera. But like, you know, their first hit, Close to You, is a song that Dionne Warwick had already recorded in the 60s. And Richard's arrangement changed that and changed entirely the tenor of the song and its appeal for people. And one of the things that I write about in the Karen Carpenter book is how there are, in the karaoke concept, actually, is how we might imagine something that could be ostensibly a copy or a cover as actually bringing something more to the process of bringing it closer to an art form than this kind of valorizing the source, the origin. I mean, there's something kind of queer about that, is there not, right? The idea yeah. of yeah. The, the copy without the original or even something very lesbian phallus about it. We want to get Judith Butler where it's just sort of like, you know, the sort of origin or the kind of fleshliness or fleshiness of, the, of origins is not where it's at. It's actually a about the different forms of amplified power that come with those slightest uh, variations or transformation, as you were saying earlier on. And that's sort of what Richard Carpenter did. That's what the Carpenters did. Or we think about like Barry Manilow's I Write the Songs That Make the Whole World Sing. 
Barry didn't write that song. So I think that the art form of pop, really, the art behind pop is to make something feel like an expression of the self, even though it may not be generated by a story that's directly from the self. It's fictive, right? It's a kind of fictive act. So I guess that's where I would go with that. And that's sort of where this episode actually can be a little bit dodgy because what it reinforces is that there is a kind of true Ashley that is necessarily dark, like a grungier, harder, rockiner Ashley, as opposed to the one with the pink hair. But having Rachel enjoying both and having Rachel at the end be able to absorb and accept both expressions of Ashliness, I think is in some way the reconciliation of what would otherwise be a kind of raucous outcome to the narrative that lets go of Ashley's poptimism completely. At the conclusion of this episode, please make sure to check out our post, at readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com, where we'll include a list of further readings, references, and links to things that we talked about in this episode. Now back to the conversation. You're getting at so many interesting things that I don't even know where to start. On the one hand, I think we all know that music is mathematics, but what makes the difference between, for example, you know, I love talking about covers that are better than originals, right? Mm-hmm. Like what makes the difference between a cover song as opposed to an original song. And the original song is, of course, also a cover. It's just Mm -hmm. a rearrangement of a structure that has been, depending on which culture and which sort of centuries you're looking at, has been repeated and repeated and repeated and has become recognizable enough to be pleasant. But what makes a difference between a cover, a good cover, It's not necessarily like, do I believe that this is a true story that the artist is telling? Or do I believe that this is a true set of notes that the artist has arranged? But does it speak to me? Does the whole product speak to me in a way that resonates with my sense of, I mean, you know, maybe true is the wrong word here, like not what is true, but does it, you know, resonate with me? And I what think fe- that that it's not is- what is true, but what feels true, which yeah. is very different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah, because I definitely don't want to say what is true to me just because as a philosopher, I loathe that formulation altogether. But it is sort of true to me, right? That there is this sense in which, I mean, it's sort of like that moment when you hear two or three or four part harmonies find that resonance where there's a whole other sonic resonance that rings in the harmony. And you think, ah, there's something more than just what I hear. But at its base, we have to recognize that it's still entirely formulaic. It's just combinations and recombinations of things that have been done before. And so this idea that it's a single artist production, and this is, of course, absolutely not at all true anymore in any of the pop music that we hear. This is not a single artist that sat in their room in front of a (laughs) mic and recorded something, right? You know, I mean, these are- Although that mythos still attaches to somebody like Taylor Swift. Although it's totally not true. It's not, it's not even yeah, because we yeah. see the process, like even the pawn sessions that she just had. Yeah, but bags or whatever. But like it's with, yeah. you know, the it's in like now she's emphasizing her collaborations. Right. There's a line from the Karen Carpenter book where you talk about the infinite redoubling of sameness, which is mm. their overlaid harmonies there. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you're talking about harmony and the kind of resonance in the two, three, four part harmonies that then kind of extend beyond that self. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting because in their production process, it was an entirely endogamous. It's just their voices. It's Richard and Karen's voices overlaid over one another, right? Yeah. So there's something about the kind of hermetically sealed within this sort of like genetic vacuum where you get like that wall of harmony in their songs. It's interesting that you were drawing from that example of a kind of sameness that layers itself over one another in these intervals because that's that is precisely 
precisely their approach to pop. That's what Richards called it, their choral approach to pop music. I think that there's something about non-singular artists. So bands, in in particular bands that that have multiple singers, that there's something about listening to those things that allow the listener to feel like they are transported into the moment of the recording. I mean, you hear this a lot with the Motown sound, the Stax sound, which is close to my heart here in Memphis, the recently deceased Oh, shit. What's his name? The wall of sound guy. Oh, yeah. uh, Spectre. Phil Spectre. Yeah. The recently deceased Phil Spectre wall of sound. You know, what's actually happening is not just about the tune. It's not just about the artists. It's about feeling a part of a moment that you are not temporally in. And that is something quite magic about pop music. It has to be familiar enough that you can put yourself in this space and time that you are not in and feel like you're there. But you could only do that if it involved all of these basic mathematical algorithms and, you know. The other aspect of it that I also talk about just through the point of view of the Carpenters, there's a reason that they constantly talked about, performed songs that reach to yesterday's once more, only right. yesterday, right? So it's every sha-la-la-la, every whoa-whoa, that what they're naming right there in that song is a formula, the formulaic sha-la-la-la, whoa-whoa-ho, of, yeah. you know, kind of doo-wop, love songs, et cetera, from 20 years, 30 years prior, Right. Right, right. In their case in the 70s. So it's a kind of open and transparent hearkening back and repetition. And in fact, they thematically lionize the repetition itself as, you know, part of the kind of process of participating in the pop moment. That is so fascinating. I don't want to impart a view to you that is not yours. But when you say that, what I hear in what you're saying is that all popular music is in some fundamental way nostalgia. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Part of what's happening in this episode of Black Mirror is that we're hearing a song. We're hearing on a roll. (laughs) And those of us who are actually watching it are getting into it because guess what? It's triggering the Nine Inch Nails memory from the 90s. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so... Black Mirror loves to tickle those of us who are tickled by the 80s and 90s. Yeah, exactly. As sort of you discussed in the San Junipero episode, right? Or whatever. But like, yeah, it's absolutely, it absolutely is the affective and nostalgic trigger that allows us to connect to the pathos of Ashley's story is because we know that song. Like that phrase that we use, I know that song. I've heard that song before. When we say that, you know, yes, it can be an indictment of something that's not original. But more often than not, when we say I know that song, it's an expression of some sort of joy or affiliation. And that's what's going on with Honor Roll. And it's just like ad nauseum repetition. It's not just exposing us to that really kind of simple process in pop music, which is the oversaturation, the kind of constant airplay of something that's a hit. But the repetition of something that is an echo from the past, it's very Battlestar Galactica in its own way, where we think <laughs> about like how they know that they, one of the ways that, spoiler alert, the Cylons get like triggered into their Cyloness is hearing all along the Watchtower, right? It's, it's <laughs> yeah, as, right. as viewers of this episode. That is what we're experiencing because we're like, even if you don't figure it out right away, because I didn't, it took me a while to be like, actually, I was watching with my wife and my friend Homei, who also loves this episode. And in a way that Ashley Osong has become her kind of theme song in a weird way also. And they hey, had Homei. Me, yeah, hey, Homei. And they had to remind <laughs> me at the end, oh, you know, that's the Nine Inch Nails song. I'm like, wait, what? Because I couldn't place it. I was in the world of contemporariness that the episode was providing. And then I realized that, okay, that's why. That's why that hook is even hookier. That's why I want to sing it to my cats. Since we're talking about that, let's talk about the difference between Trent Reznor's Head Like a Hole and this Ashley O song. So the chorus to Trent Reznor's Head Like a Hole is Head Like a Hole, Dark as My Soul, I'd Rather <laughs> Die Than Give You Control. 
<laughs> and you know, which is which is what Ashley feels, right? Because that's what because yeah. Catherine controls her, right? That's like, you know, yeah. that's what that's what's in her heart is like wanting to wrench free from that anguish to it, right? No, a hundred percent. But th- this song is transposed, and like I'm not even sure transposed is. I mean, you know, musically it's the right term to use, but yeah. this song is transposed into Ashley O's song. And for listeners who haven't seen the episode yet, which you should, uh, but who haven't seen the episode yet, I mean, Ashley O is a pop artist. She is a kind of silver glitter, cut off top and mini skirt, pink wig pop artist. Glossy, glossy. Glossy, right? And maybe you can help me remember, but the transposed lyrics are... Oh, yeah. I mean, I know because it's like... Um, it's, it's, I'm I'm on a a roll. Yeah. Um, riding so high, achieving my goals. And then like, I'm stoked on ambition and verve. (laughs) And it's like, I'm going to get get what what I I deserve. deserve. Exactly. It's like a capitalist anthem, right? And it's about ambition and verve. And probably let's go get it. It's like the self-affirmation. It's almost like Oprah's affirmations, right? It's like manifesting. (laughs) You're manifesting. You get a career in. You exactly. get a career and you get a career versus like, you know, bow down before the one you serve. Is like yeah. It, the I mean, it's and verb line, so right? opposite. Yeah. That's yeah. such a good point. I think that this is a often overlooked and actually we should come back to this later, but you know, this is one of the lowest rated Black Mirror episodes. Yes. We'll, co- we'll come back to that in a minute. But yeah. I think this is an often overlooked, brilliant moment of this episode, which is how they transpose those lyrics. Not only yeah. just completely transpose the song into this kind of peppy, major key, uppity song, mm-hmm. but also it could not be more opposite than the original artist's intention. Oh, yeah, for sure. But it is. It's also like the transformation of Trent Reznor to a certain extent of like Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor becoming like Hollywood guy, Trent Reznor. Right. I mean, he, okay, so... I mean, he did become Hollywood guy. I mean, he wrote, yeah. the, very famously wrote the soundtrack for The Social Network. Yes. But I mean, even the soundtrack to The Social Network is quite dark and very... You know, yeah, like nine, the, the nine, nine inch nailsy industrial you know I mean? goth, like yeah, yeah. I mean, like he he didn't become Miley Cyrus. He didn't become yeah. Ashley O. But I do think that the fact that you can take a Trent Reznor song and make it into an Ashley O. song is part of the theme of this episode, which is that certain things are familiar to us and entirely formulaic, and therefore can be reproduced with a difference in a way that will have dramatic impacts on our lives, but we will recognize and be able to incorporate it in our lives. And honestly, I think that that is Black Mirror's, the series version of the self is mm-hmm. that it can be simulated. It can be duplicated. It's not attached to a person in the sense of a bodily person or a soul or a kind of singular self. This is just a formula and we can take it from one container and put it in another container. We can make changes to it and it's more or less the same. And I think that is not to me anyway, all that far from a lot of criticisms that people make about pop artists, qua celebrities in general. They're just occupying a formulaic role in society. These are not real people. Anybody could do that. Yeah. And this is the kind of sonic mirror version of that, right? The sonic aspect of the sonic mirror, the acoustic mirror version of the the, the black mirror. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. J. Just wanted to jump in here for a second to remind you that you can keep up with this podcast on our Black Mirror Reflections Facebook page, also on Twitter at BMR underscore podcast. And I also wanted to make a special request that you please subscribe to this podcast on whatever streaming service that you use to listen to podcasts. And if you feel favorably inclined to do so, take a minute to rate and maybe even comment on this podcast. Now back to our conversation. Do you remember this viral video called The Axis of Awesome? 
Like, oh my God. With yes. it. Yeah. We're like, they <laughs> show how the same chord progression runs through every song, right? Yes. I mean, yes. that's something like just Google Access of Awesome so you can see as just another side commentary as a footnote to the conversation we've been having. How I will like, link to of, it in the episode notes of this yeah. episode. Go well, the kind of mechanical reproduction of things. And certainly what it shows us as well is, all, of course, this conversation that we tend to have with our students all the time where everybody like longs for and hopes for a kind of outside to capitalist absorption of the kind of the subcultural absorption that happens into the monoculture, into the mainstream culture. That's part of what Black Mirror more broadly demonstrates is that, yet yeah, as you're saying, those things that present themselves as basically these things with a slight difference or that have some kind of vestigial relationship to a pastness because comes looped then into some sort of vision of future or futurity that is meant to be better, but inevitably is even further away, more kind of bankrupt than the original product that was itself already something that was churned through whatever industrial processes and, and whatnot. And maybe mm-hmm. let me ask you this question, which is that you're a professor of queer studies, and this is true across the humanities, but especially in philosophy, there are a lot of different readings of what queering is or does. <laughs> and my understanding of what queering as a verb means is that it is a discounting of the truth of either the original or the repetition and an insertion of some kind of modulation difference transposition so that we are able to see the world as not just originals and repetitions not merely formulaic right and um, that's and a, so- yeah that's a great way of focusing on it too as also like a, a set of structures and formulas and what have you as opposed to the articulation of of an identity of, of a being right right yeah. the queering is not about inserting a queer body somewhere Like, you know, when people, that gets to the very heart of the matter, exactly how you've described it. Because even like with a karaoke project, we're talking about karaoke, it's like, do I have to produce a queer body performing karaoke, right? Like, where the the material evidence, like, no, that's not the point of it. The point of it is like thinking about what those processes are. That doesn't undo the existence of queer bodies at all, right? Or the existence of the material conditions of queerness. It doesn't undo that. But what it does, is it allows us to explore some of the different material and discursive foundations of that. Yeah, and just open up a space to understand that nothing is identical to itself. I do feel like that there is this sense in which part of the work of queering texts, queering ideas, queering culture is not about just simply introducing queer people Right. Mm -hmm. But it's about introducing this space of difference that is neither an original nor repetition. And that is what I think actually what successful pop music manages to do. I mean, I'm not the first person who said this. I'm probably the eight millionth person who said this. But of course, one of the great things about the Beatles was that they were able to take these basic three chord progressions and present them in a way that sounded familiar enough to be catchy but new enough to be lovable, you know? Um, And that's the whole history of country music. That's the whole history of folk music. I mean, that's the whole history of blues music. All these kind of roots music forms are formulas, but they live by constantly being not simply repeated, but transformed, right? It, It so brings me to like, actually my wife's been working on this project related to whale song. I want to hear how, how I want to hear where this is going <laughs> <laughs> and how whales sing to each other. Like, oh, really? that actually, you know, that whales, they also work within a very limited structure. So there is a kind of base or foundational huh. structure or song, and it's repeated in different regions, different parts. So my wife, Sarah Kessler, has been collaborating with someone who's a cantor named Daniela Gesundheit. And they have done these whale workshops together where they teach us how to basically replicate the singing whale song using like songs like Row, Row, Row Your Boat and what have you. And and so like beginning with this foundational structure and then showing us the different ways in which whales themselves have elongated certain phrases or done what have you and encouraging us to do that as we all kind of meander around a space, try to like pick up on the variation that someone's singing in this region or what have you. That's how whale song works. What you described, what you just described 
described about that kind of epochal, like, you know, that we know of from kind of oral culture and balladry and the whole deal is also the way it works in whale song. So there's something there, right? There's something, it brings us back to, so when we get from the mathematical to, again, some sort of like planetary thing or what have you, I don't know what you want to call it, but um, (laughs) just thought I'd throw that in there too for an extra dose of California woo. Yeah, I was like, I was trying not, to, I was trying not to say this is my, this is my, this is my uh, Southern California friend bringing in the whales. Like, but it's like can- whales, dude. <laughs> Ashley O and Ashley Two are not the same people, and they're not entirely different persons, but they belong to the same song. Yeah, they absolutely. That's great. That's that's exactly it. And the episode right there. They belong to the same song. (laughs) Boat. Being able to accept that we belong to the song instead of vice versa is yeah is the way to be. You mean instead of the song belongs to us. Yeah, exactly. I can't, I don't know what I just said. Like the second part, maybe I just repeated the same version, the same sides of the same chord. I love that. I love that. I I want, I want that t-shirt. Yeah, dude, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Bringing the vibes. (laughs) Okay, Karen. So as you know, at the end of every episode, I ask my guests the same three questions. So I'm going to state them to you all in a row. You can answer them all in a row. First question is, what do you think the lesson or the takeaway of Rachel, Jack, and Ashley 2 is? The second question is, what worries or concerns you the most about this episode? And the third question is, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being a nightmarish dystopia and 10 being a kind of utopia, where does the world of this episode fall for you? So let's start with the takeaway. So the takeaway is, is actually where organic conversation ended. The takeaway should be that you belong to the song. The song doesn't belong to you, right? That should be the takeaway. I think a lot of people were disappointed with this episode because the takeaway ended up being there is a kind of true and authentic self and that self performs at the grungy rock club with <laughs> Jack. Right. <laughs> uh, and that, you know, that, that it's, it's Ashley fucking O to you, not Ashley too. Right. But, right. you know, but again, what we spent a lot of time talking about is that everybody's there together. Ashley yeah. too is still there. Right. Ashley too, hasn't been vanquished to the graveyard of broken and discarded toys. Ashley too is hanging out in the club. Mm-hmm. with Ashley fucking O and with Rachel and Jack. So everybody belongs to the song and in the space of the song. So that should be the takeaway. What scares or worries me most? Gosh, you know, the thing is, I'm not that afraid of anything that appeared in the episode, honestly. I do like, I'm like, would I be concerned if someone could just basically hold my consciousness hostage in a hard drive and, <laughs> you know, like basically copy and download that? Part of me is like, yes, but part of me is like, nah, let them have it. You know, like again, I'm the same. You know, right? I'm the same. I'm so <laughs> glad to find you were my first guest that has not been super afraid of removing a consciousness from a brain. And you know, yeah, I'm like, let it live, let it thrive, let it be. You know, like put it in Ashley too. I don't care, right? right? Like, it's like, it's like, you're there. You're let a million flowers bloom. Exactly. You're still part of the party, you know, like, I mean, that's where, you know, there's a, this is a big, big spoiler alert, by the way, for those of you who've never seen years and years. So if you, if, if you haven't seen that series, uh, then, then, you know, like turn away or skip it for the next minute. But it's interesting that that series lands with the possibility of being uploaded to, you know, whatever. Yeah. Right. And then being like portaled through the old senor, essentially your Alexa or Google Mini or whatever the, he- the heck you, it is. Yeah. So, yeah, but, but I, yeah, I feel you right there. I think that it's like it's our good time spirits. You know what I mean? And I think that that's yeah. where like with the takeaway, the takeaway that we want or that I said that I wanted from the show, as opposed to the one that most people went away with that sense of, yeah, you belong to the song. It's another version of that. It's another iteration of that idea. I'm happy for our consciousnesses to persist and continue to mingle somewhere else. I love that. I'm glad that I'm, you and I know where we're going to be at some point. We'll be in the cloud yeah. somewhere. <laughs> I mean, I, I totally want to be remixed. 
Yeah, absolutely. Same here. Hack into my consciousness. Find a way to do something with it, right? Make a da- um, make a dance club remix of it. Dance club remix for sure. Like you know, <laughs> it's gonna be like Old Town Road. <laughs> it's gonna be like how many versions can you churn out? Uh, you know. Yeah. But in terms of the scale of utopian to dystopian, I mean, again, if your takeaway is the takeaway that we've spent time crafting together in this episode, it's yeah. on, like high on the utopian scale. I can't remember if the 10 is utopian or is it? Yes. Dystopian? Yeah. The 10, 10 is, is utopian. utopian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'd say that it's like probably like a solid eight on the on the that scale. If you go with the takeaway that we provided for you, if you <laughs> go with the you know, if you go with the takeaway, that's again, that's, that's kind of the easy read it's like a first pickup of of the episode is that like there's a true self that you can find and all you need is to be liberated then that's just sad that's like a three you know what i mean that's a dystopian yeah, as fuck super sad yeah yeah but i want i'm gonna go with the eight i'm gonna live in the eight and if you feel like the three then the rest of you can stay in the three yes yes karen two lee two <laughs> exactly yeah we're gonna yeah. be hits we're gonna be hits in the future i mean you're a hit now but I'm no, we're, we're, we're all hits. We're all hits <laughs> waiting to find. We're all waiting to find the right remix. <laughs> right. The right remix to bring us through the world. I mean, and also it's just sort of like, sure, Head Like a Hole was a good song, but also, you know, come on. Uh, I mean, it's not as good a song as the song in the episode, though. Yeah, I'm on a roll. I mean, like, let's, like, a, come on. Let's, let's yeah. face it. On a yeah. roll is an amazing. On a roll is amazing. And that is why I always, you know, it's so sweet because my goofy cat, Corky, like, you know, and we call him Bergy because like he's a, he's a black and white tuxedo cat. And yeah. so we, we call him a moo. We call him a cow. We call him a burger. Right. You yeah. see all the different uh, iterations <laughs> yeah. of that. And so, you know, um, like it's it's very sweet when I'm like Berg's on a roll, achieving his goals, <laughs> and you know it's really sweet because he's not very ambitious. He just kind of lies around like most cats do. Anyway, I love it. Ashley O is, you know, Ashley's hit on a roll is like again part of it's really part of my last kind of pre-pandemic thrills are very much scored to, <laughs> you know, hanging out in Oakland, California with Home, yeah. listening to that song over and over again, driving across the Bay Bridge, doing shit like that, you know, anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then and then it was like sad trombone, <laughs> sad trombone. But we but now we're getting to see each other, you know, whatever, in our mediated way. But yeah, yeah. And we're we're definitely going to do this again. And hey, I could not possibly thank you enough for this conversation. This has been so great. Like really amazing. It's I really been super appreciate fun. it. I mean, and I can't wait for us to get a chance to sing songs together. For oh my God. Yes. Know, like do some real, some tunes, whether it's a piano bar, karaoke bar, or if it's just like singing to the radio somewhere. Like I can't wait to get back out to Memphis to see you. And I hope that you come and see us out here in Ashley Oland in LA. <laughs> book it book it we're gonna yeah. do it all right thank you so much karen thank you you've been listening to black mirror reflections check us out and please subscribe on apple spotify google podcasts or wherever you download your regular podcasts mm-hmm.